0: Thanks to Audible and the new Audible original, Power Moves, for supporting this week's Motley Fool Money. Power Moves by Adam Grant is available, and you can get it for free when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash foolpower. Or you can text the word foolpower to 500-500.
1: Everybody needs money.
2: That's why they call it money. The
0: best thing. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Good to see you, as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey guys. You. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk stock buybacks and get an Oscars preview from our guest, Nell Minow. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But guys, just when you thought the Amazon <laughs> HQ2 nightmare was over... This week, Amazon announced it is dropping the deal to build a second headquarters in New York City due to rising political protests. The one here in Northern Virginia is still on, and that means, among other things, Jason, that the second headquarter location close to Ron Gross's house <laughs> is still very Backing much on the table. And mine's. Well, I don't still know very if much it's still in play. on the table between I mean, our houses.
3: It always struck me. I guess I I was always a little bit. It just struck me as odd that they chose New York. To begin with, it just didn't seem like it was really in the center of the conversation. But I mean, they went with it, and now they're not going with it. Seems like a lot of political back and forth, and just you know, I don't know that I necessarily have an opinion on that. It does seem to me um, the political side, the political concerns, are perhaps a little bit more short-sighted. It seems like in the press that the the story is being communicated that Amazon was going to get all of these incentives. I mean, I think it's important to remember these incentives were based on conditions. I mean there were they were conditions in where they had to meet certain numbers uh regarding hiring and whatnot, and then they would receive these incentives. So it wasn't like New York was just giving up all of this stuff. I mean there was a performance bonus kind of involved with all of this. Uh, but with that said, uh, it does sound like it went down to the final hour and, and just they couldn't make it work. So, you know, you just move forward. It ought to bring a few more jobs here to Virginia, I would imagine.
0: Uh, like you, I was a little surprised when they split it between Northern Virginia and New York City. But, Andy, you were saying before we started taping, you weren't surprised New York Yeah, City New
4: York to- actually, according to the Brookings Institute, New York has one of the, of the largest tech forces in America, followed by Washington, D.C. So, like, just thinking those two big markets... Have lots of tech people that Amazon could hire for. And I, I, to me, for this one, it just seemed like Amazon was pushing what they wanted and they got a little pushback and they didn't like it. So they said, hey, we're taking our jobs elsewhere.
2: Which is their prerogative. Um, I don't think this hurts Amazon in any way. I hope it doesn't hurt those communities that are going to not have kind of the capital investment that Amazon was going to bring. But uh, I don't think Amazon misses a
3: beat. Yeah, I think you're right. This doesn't really hurt Amazon. I think New York needs Amazon more than the other way around. I think it was really interesting to read the stories about all the real estate speculation that began as soon as this decision was made. Um, judging from from what I was reading, I mean, real estate agents were taking requests purchases were being made sight unseen via text message and whatnot. And and lo and behold, now it seems like uh, they're not necessarily going to have that same business landscape that they thought they might have. So, I'm sure there probably are some uh, real estate investors slash speculators that are
0: feeling a little bit of the pinch right now. Well, fingers crossed that they pull the trigger quick, because I, I really hate to think that in six months we're still talking about Yeah, this I'm story. fatiguing on the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, let's get to the week's earnings news. Shares of NVIDIA up nearly 10% this week. Fourth quarter profits came in higher for the chipmaker. Andy, it has been a rough 12 months for shareholders, so I'm wondering, is this representation that NVIDIA turned things around, or was this sort of a stop the bleeding situation.
4: I think it's the latter, Chris. I think it stopped the bleeding. They, I think investors looked at this and said, okay, uh, they're talking about how the inventory hangover from the crypto boom, which drove a lot of their gaming sales revenues and growth over the last couple of years, uh, which caused problems when that market suffered last uh, quarter. And the stock just fell from 280 down to 130 over the course of a couple of months. So that has now, they've said, will play out mostly through this first quarter. So I think investors are saying while well, the growth picture for NVIDIA will probably basically be about flat this year. Investors are saying at least that crypto boom hangover has now passed. So we still have the China concerns, but that's a good sign for investor for the, for Inve- for Nvidia and for the shareholders as well.
0: And in terms of Nvidia's management, uh, safe to assume you like this strategy of downplaying expectations for 2019?
4: I think I do. Yes, I mean they're still the leader in these high-end graphics cards, uh, and while well, AMD and Intel are coming after them and very competitive, uh, Nvidia has this lead. Um, Jensen Huang, who owns three percent of the company are more than the $3 billion, and the CEO and the founder of the business continues to innovate, and they have some pricing power. Although they started saying, hey, listen, we're also going after the mid-tier pricing, I still think they're just kind of downplaying a little bit of the the potential across all of their units. Gaming was down, but data center was up, visualization was up, automotive was up. So, their other lines of business continue to drive the growth of NVIDIA. So, if they can get through the gaming side uh, on the crypto um, craze from last quarter, that's a good sign for Nvidia.
0: Coca Cola and Pepsi both out with fourth quarter reports this week, both dealing with foreign currency headwinds, but investors seem more confident in Pepsi's business run because on Thursday, shares of Coca Cola had their worst day in over Oof. a decade.
2: Yeah, you know, neither company is knocking it off the ball over the last year, but I think Pepsi, at least the perception is, is that they've reacted to changing consumer preferences a bit better partly through acquisitions like SodaStream and Bare Foods. Um, But while they both lowered guidance, I think Coke's was more serious. It was based on lower revenue growth, slowdown in emerging markets, whereas Pepsi's were more like currency headwinds, tax rates, making investments to actually grow the business. So, I think investors gave Pepsi a pass.
0: Well, Coke got slammed. Well, and when you think about acquisitions, uh, Pepsi has the Frito-Lay business, so they can make acquisitions in the salty snack Industry in a way that Coca-Cola just probably is never going to. It's not there, and they're willing to spend the money
2: as as, as they have recently with Bear Foods um, to kind of go with those change of consumer preferences. People don't like sugar anymore. It turns out. Um, and whoa, 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 pe- whoa. Hold on, hold <laughs> on. <sounds, you> know, <laughs> some of us still like sugar. Yeah. Right. Perhaps some people no longer like sugar as much as they once did, <laughs> and Pepsi is really reacting to it. Now Coke is too. Let, I mean, let's not forget. Um, and but you know. Coke is actually going to be introducing the orange vanilla Coke uh, in the near future, which I'm not sure I like the sound of that. (laughs) I think people like the taste of orange and vanilla together. Like, Is that a creamsicle? Creamsicle. Creamsicle. That's a cream. So maybe that works. But um, as we go towards more healthy items,
3: I'm not sure that's the way to go. Orange Julius, baby. Well, as I was sitting there enjoying my Quaker oatmeal this morning and watching Pepsi's stock go up a little bit based on this call, I decided to go ahead and at least look through the call and, and see if we could get a little bit more information as to what they're going to be doing with SodaStream, because I'm still a little bit baffled by that one. And uh, unfortunately, there is no real information. They just basically acknowledged that the acquisition was made in the call, didn't talk anything about any strategy or whatsoever. And and maybe that's just new leadership really trying to get a grip on the fact that they own this thing now. I'm not sure that Indra Nui necessarily had a plan for it either. Uh, But to me, that really is going to be the big question of 2019. What are they going to do with that business? But but Jason, you can make seltzer in your home. I understand that, Ron. You need more do of a strategy it. than that? Hey, I'm a seltzer guy, but I think I'd just rather buy the twelve packs at the store, you know? By the way, neither
2: of these stocks are expensive, nineteen times, twenty times, depending on, you know, what what the guidance kind of looks like going forward for both. So while Pepsi is outperforming um,
0: from an operating perspective right now, both could be a decent play. One more thing on the acquisition front, because I mean we we talk about Pepsi and their acquisitions. It was last summer that Coca-Cola bought Costa Coffee for around $5 billion, that's the uh, U.K.-based coffee brand. It seems like they need to make that work sooner rather than later. Well, for sure. And
2: as we know, many acquisitions actually don't go the way they're supposed to. Um, but this is an important one. They also took a stake in the energy drink Body Armor, which I think they want mm-hmm. to make work. And they're also thinking about maybe releasing their own energy drink, which it seems like to compete got, with the one we've that got plenty bought. of them. Maybe <laughs> they should release a, a seltzer a flavored seltzer
0: drink, because I don't think we have enough of those in the marketplace right now. Shares of Under Armour up a bit this week after fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. And Jason, if you're looking for bright spots, and as a shareholder I am, <laughs> um, it does look like Under Armour is doing a better job of managing their inventory.
3: I, I agree with that. I think going into this quarter, the biggest question uh, for me was was re- revolving around North America. And North America has been a real uh, weak weak point for the business here over the past number of quarters. And and so, that doesn't really seem to offer all that much encouragement. And to put it into context, Under Armour reported uh, North American sales down 6%, where their competitor Nike just reported sales up 9%. So, really, we're seeing the tail of two different athletic companies here, and, and Nike Stock has re- responded accordingly. But with that said, I mean, it was ultimately is a mixed bag quarter for Under Armour. There were some things to like about it. We know they do have a very strong international business. Those sales were up 35% ex currency. Gross margin actually up 160 basis points based on uh, not only a little bit of, of pricing power there, but also uh, ringing out some efficiencies in the business. And, and to your point, they are getting inventory levels back in check very quickly. So I attribute that to Kevin Plank really taking this seriously, bringing on a CFO and a COO, uh, who, who can help him guide this business, take it to the next level. Uh, they also hired a chief culture officer, uh, Chernavia Rocker, who has 22 uh, 22 years of experience at uh, Harley-Davidson, uh, so encouraged having her on the team there, uh, building a long-term, sustainable place where people want to be. Uh, you know, I think that's been one of the big red flags with Under Armour for a while, is can Kevin Plank assemble a team of people that want to stay there and work for him? It seems like maybe now he's starting, figure, starting to figure out how to do that.
0: You know, we talk about pricing power from time to time, and it's interesting to think back a few years when Lululemon was starting to rise, had good success selling the high-end yoga pants. And one of the things we talked about on this show was, well, once Nike and Under Armour get in there at a lower price point, that could spell doom for Lululemon. And you look at just Lululemon and their strategy of not really discounting, being more of a premium brand, that appears to have paid off in ways that under Armour's discounting strategy and being in outlet malls all over the country really hasn't. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that Under Armour could one day become
3: sort of like Nike in that regard, and everybody just wearing Under Armour clothing, whether it's for casual nature or athletic nature. But really, Under Armour was founded based on that performance uh, equipment, right? It was the compressed and the wicking shirts and all that. Uh, so, for them to make that move into, into being more things for more people, so to speak, is a bit of a trick. Uh, they seem to Have gotten away from their real specialty to begin with, they can really, you know, again, get back to managing that business. Focus on just running a running a tight ship. You know, growth will come if you make good decisions, but don't make decisions based on just wanting to grow the company. And that's what they've been doing these past several years. You know,
4: one thing I think Lululemon has done so well, Chris, since you mentioned it is they've really enhanced and built that community in the local areas where they have the well, they have their stores around um, yoga and events, and I think that's been very valuable for them to be able to enhance their brands. Like Jason was saying, focus for Under Armour is in this area. I think the focus for Lululemon has been in that area, and it's done really well for them. Uh, and The stock's done, done very well, at least relative to, to Under Armour the past couple of years.
2: It's interesting. From an investor perspective, it's very, very difficult to predict a company like Lululemon's success down the road. There's fashion involved, uh, there's consumer preferences, they're ch- changing changing wants and desires from consumers whereas a, a company like Nike is a little bit more easy to I think predict the future on because of kind of their bread and butter Business. Um, and that's why, I mean, I think fashion retail, specialty retail, it's just, you know, if, if you can predict a year or two out in these things, you know, more power to you. Yeah,
4: although, I'm oh, sorry, I was going to say, even though Jason, the golf business of Nike has it had its totally ups and downs and it was flying high at one point during the heyday of Tiger Woods and then it just totally collapsed.
3: Yeah, I mean, you rewind 20, 25 years ago, even further, 30 years ago, we look at Nike back then. I mean, it was obviously a much smaller operation. Would not have been easy to predict the success they've, they've uh, come to, to know today. And that's all just to say that with Under Armour, I mean, I know that Kevin Plank, his goal is to kind of supplant Nike and become the number 1 brand. But you got to remember, one of the biggest variables in that equation is time. It's going to take a while to get there, so you can't really discount the fact that Nike's been at it for a long
0: time. Under Armour will be, too. Earnings Palooza rolls on, so don't touch that dial. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Shopify's fourth quarter loss was smaller than expected, so... I guess that's something, honey. Huh,
4: <laughs> well, I guess it is, but it's not really stock investors in Shopify really aren't quite caring so much about their the profit picture right now. It's really really about the growth and their sales uh, were up um, uh, 43% for the subscription solutions, uh, the merchandise volume, which is all the volume across Shopify's platforms that are sold was up 54% in the quarter, quarter and monthly recurring revenue up 37%. Now, those are all a little bit lower Chris than last year's quarter. So, the Growth is definitely slowing, but for a $20 billion company, that's kind of to be expected. The operating profit margin expanded a little bit on an adjusted basis, and same with the income per share. So. Just look at the cyber Monday and the Black Friday sales uh, last year. They did one billion across those periods of all the merchandise volume for Shopify, and this year it was one point five billion. So more traffic going through Shopify's Shopify's platform.
0: Is this a business that eventually, when they get to the point of profitability, it's reasonable to expect they stay that way? Because certainly in Amazon's past they had you know, a profitable quarter here, and then it was right back to being losses quarter after quarter. Well,
4: I think that's because of the investments that Amazon's making, and Shopify certainly is. But I think what investors are saying is, hey, listen, the growth is still there on the sales line. They're starting to see that profit curve kind of start to show up. And so, when that all starts to take off over the next couple of years, the profit picture should be much healthier, and I imagine much more consistent.
0: Shares of Activision Blizzard still hovering around a two-year low this week. Fourth quarter results were not great, and guidance for the first half of 2019 was weak. Ron, they've got some great game franchises, but they have got real problems. Yeah, I know my
2: colleague last week, Aaron Bush, had a very forceful opinion about this. But just because it was forceful doesn't make it right. No! <laughs> oh, love you, Aaron. Um, so, it really is about the changing video game model here. And Fortnite is the face of that changing model, but it's not the only um, game in town there. It's about the free battle royale game and the switch to those kinds of, of um, gaming experiences. And Activision is not does not have a strong presence there. So, they're going to lay off 8% of the workforce. They're going to, interestingly, boost the number of developers by 20% and put them into some of their biggest games like Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Diablo, but not necessarily move into this battle royale space to go head-to-head against um, Epic Games and Fortnite and the new Apex Legends, which has taken the world by storm. Activision doesn't necessarily plan to do that.
4: Speaking of Fortnite, they launched
0: their merchant store on Shopify's e-commerce platform last quarter. Restaurant Brands International is the parent company of Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Hortons. Fourth quarter results look good at, well, two out of three, Jason. Getting hungry just from that read in,
3: Chris. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I look at these types of, of businesses, these big restaurant companies, and I, I think a lot of them are pretty decent income plays if you can find well run operations. And I think that Restaurant Brands is one of them, it has some compelling. Brands there, perhaps maybe second tier brands we, we would consider here with Burger King and Tim Hortons and Popeyes. But the numbers are the numbers, and system wide sales growth uh, was 6.8% for the quarter with Burger King showing the way. A good, healthy mix of store growth and in actual sales numbers. Uh, positive comps for all three. Popeyes was closer to flat, but I think when you look at this company big picture, it's, it's around 25,000 restaurants today worldwide. You compare that with something like McDonald's, where there's somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty seven thousand, there's clearly the opportunity to grow the footprint there. And I'm going to say the C word here, (laughs) China's the wild card, Chris, Mm -hmm. because they just signed a master franchise joint venture that is going to result, hopefully, in 1,500 new restaurants over the next decade. Now, I think that's important to note, the next decade. That doesn't seem like they're going to go in there and just you know, guns ablazing, and just open up you know five hundred stores a year. But there's a big opportunity there.
0: So you're saying an American business thinks that there's a growth opportunity in China? <laughs>
3: I'm just putting it on the table for listeners. I mean, you know, we just put it out there; they get to decide. But I think at the end of the day, restaurant brands. I mean, it is a company that pays a three point one percent dividend yield. That should continue to grow over time. The nice thing about these restaurants, people got to eat, and most people are out there looking for some kind of a compelling value. And, and they're covering the gamut, right? From Burger King to Tim Hortons to Popeyes. And we can't discount the fact that they may roll
0: another concept in, uh, concept in there at some point, too. All right, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you later in the show. Up next, we've got a cure for stock buybacks and a few predictions for the Academy Awards. Nell Minow is coming up. This is Motley Full Money. Before we get to Nell Minow, quick shout-out to Power Moves by New York Times bestselling author Adam Grant. It's available on Audible. and You can get it for free when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash Foolpower or text the word Power to 500-500. In Power Moves, Adam interviews two dozen major CEOs and leaders to talk about how power is changing today and the best ways to use it effectively. You're going to hear practical ideas and insights from leaders like Satya Nadella at Microsoft, Mary Barra at General Motors, David Solomon at Goldman Sachs. We've had Adam Grant as a guest on this show. We've had him here at Fool headquarters in Alexandria. We love this guy. He is smart. He is curious. He's one of those people, when you're done listening to him, you're smarter because of it. Power Moves by Adam Grant, available now on Audible. Get it for free when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash foolpower or text the word Power to 500-500. Now, let's get to Nell Minow. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Later this month, there will be drama at the Academy Awards, but there's already drama in America's corporate boardrooms. So, of course, we turn to the only guests who can discuss both. Nell Minow is the Vice Chair of Value Edge Advisors. She is also the film critic known as the movie mom. She joins me now. Nell, good to talk to you.
5: Thank you. Glad to be back.
0: Before we get to the movies, let's start with the topic of stock buybacks. This is something that comes up on a pretty regular basis on this show, usually in the form of us discussing Company X announcing a billion-dollar buyback plan. It's now gotten the attention of the folks on Capitol Hill senators from both sides of the political aisle are coming forward with their plans to limit companies' ability to buy back stock. This is something you just wrote an op-ed on. How big a problem is this, and what do you think the solution is?
5: Well, I think it is a big problem. and I can tell you the solution is not what Senators Schumer and Sanders are proposing, which is looney tunes. They want to prohibit buybacks at companies that are not paying $15 an hour. Minimum wage. This is crazy because, of course, that's very skewed according to the sector and has nothing to do with anything. Um, The reason that buybacks are a problem is it's sometimes the case when a very useful financial instrument gets completely distorted and out of hand and starts to cannibalize the financial system. I think we saw something like that back in 2008. And in this case, uh, we have um, the The tax cut bill, which everybody promised us was going to go to strategic investment and R&D and doing better and compensating employees, and of course went straight to buybacks, with last year having a record trillion-dollar buyback number, most of which was in just maybe 20 companies. But still, you know, it seems to me that the very last thing that I want a Uh, board of directors to do with excess cash is to overpay for an acquisition, which, of course, happens quite often. But my second least favorite thing for them to do, so getting a D rather than an F, is a buyback, because that's basically their way of saying, we're out of ideas. We have nothing. We got nothing here. Um, We have no ideas of how to improve our products or uh, improve our operations or improve our marketing or do better by our employees. We're just going to give you back the The money that you've invested, and say whatever. And my particular problem with buybacks is that companies never adjust their EPS targets. So really, the insiders are getting a triple dip. The first they get, of course, the increase in the stock price, and they're all large stockholders. But second. Uh, very often, and this has been documented by SEC Commissioner Jackson, they sell into the buyback. So, while they're telling the market the stock is undervalued, and so it's just a great thing to do to buy back stock, they're selling into it, which is certainly, at, at the very least, a mixed message. And the third thing is, there are two ways of meeting an EPS target. You can increase your earnings, or you can reduce the number of outstanding shares. And companies don't reflect that uh, when they do a buyback, and so they get an extra sort of windfall in their incentive compensation because they've met their EPS goals.
0: How much of this could be helped by simply providing more transparencies? Again, a lot of companies just come out with their quarterly earnings report and say, oh, and by the way, we've allocated a couple billion dollars for a buyback plan over X amount of time. And it seems like if they went a couple of steps further in terms of just saying, oh, and by the way, here's how we're going to be evaluating opportunistic buying. Because for a long time, Warren Buffett was very clear in terms of essentially setting a book value target for when he would buy back shares of Berkshire Hathaway.
5: Exactly. And in the piece that you mentioned, uh, I talk about a, a study that really shivered my timbers and really is part of what Got me interested in buybacks in the first place. A study of a couple of years ago, where they interviewed directors and said, "Now explain to me what exactly your calculus was for deciding that a buyback was an appropriate thing to do right now," and they all said, "Huh? You know, they really had nothing." And in terms of their disclosure, uh, they, as you said, they they almost never give any specifics about why they think it's the best possible use for their corporate asset. And so, yeah, that would be important, but. Certainly, I am proposing in my piece two absolute requirements. I would not allow a buyback unless the companies did two things. One is, as I said, adjusting the EPS targets so that uh, you're not getting any sort of double dealing there. Uh, And the other is, I would not let the insiders sell into the buyback. In fact, I'm very hard-line about it. I would not allow them to sell any of their shares or their exercise option shares uh, for uh, up to three years um, following the buyback, Um, just to make sure that their decision about buying back stock is made for the long-term benefit of the
0: shareholders. It's not often that the world of corporate governance involves a high level of mystery, intrigue, and blackmail. But that is at the heart of Jeff Bezos' allegations against the National Enquirer. If you were a member of Amazon's board of directors, What would you be thinking about these recent developments, and what would you be saying when it got to be your turn to speak in the boardroom?
5: I would stand up and cheer. I think it's absolutely terrific. What he did was wonderful. It had no effect whatsoever on his ability to lead the company. Pretty much everything was already out. He and his wife had already separated. It was already public knowledge uh, that he had a girlfriend. This other stuff is just trivial. There was nothing abusive about it. There was nothing furtive about it. So I think that is absolutely fine Uh, and uh, so good for him. Uh, In the past, when we've seen CEOs get into trouble over extramarital relationships or any kind of relationship, uh, it's been a problem when, for example, they They paid them in some way from the, you know, they've they brought them on as consultants, or they um, were uh, there. There was some kind of an abusive uh, structure where he was the supervisor. I'm going to say he because it usually is a he, Um, something like that. But in this case, what he did in his own time was fine, and he handled it. I thought in an exemplary fashion.
0: You were recently quoted as saying that Facebook needs independent directors. What do you see as the primary problem at Facebook that independent directors help fix?
5: Well, is it possible, let's just talk about this first, is it possible for Facebook to have independent directors as long as the CEO and founder uh, has the controlling amount of the stock? I think it is. It's a little tricky to make that work, but I think it can happen. I'll tell you how it can happen. But the reason I think it's so important is, the single stupidest thing that anybody can do, whether it's an individual or a company, is to enter into some kind of consent agreement with the government and then violate it. That's a slam dunk, not just for the government to come after you, but also for your shareholders to come after you. It's, unbe- it's unfathomably stupid. And that's what they did with regard to their commitment to the government on privacy. That's an issue of tremendous importance to their consumers. And I think that Facebook is a lot less sticky than they think. It's already lost a lot of people and exactly the people they need, the younger people. So basically it's a lot of grandmas you know, showing pictures of their grandchildren uh, on there now. So I think that it's a tremendously risky moment for Facebook. Now, how to have independent directors? There's only one way to do it, and that is to say that the non-Zuckerberg shareholders get to put some number of directors on the board. In other words, that he doesn't get to vote at all on those candidates.
0: Next week is the 10th anniversary of Motley Fool Money, which means that you and I first started talking around 10 years ago. Wow! Um, When you look back at the world of corporate governance over the last 10 years, what do you think has been the biggest change for the better?
5: Biggest change for the better is definitely much more active, engaged, uh, involved, and Capable board members. Uh, boards have really stepped up to the plate um, much, much, much more than they did uh, 10 years ago, partly because of changes in the law, partly because of changes in the culture. And uh, that has been very encouraging.
0: Before we get to the Academy Awards, I want to ask you a question sort of about your job as a film critic. This week, the first teaser trailer for the movie Frozen 2 was released, and I'm sure it's going to rake in a billion dollars. Increasingly, we're seeing these tentpole movies, many of which are sequels or remakes. And I'm curious, in your job as a film critic, is peak happiness for you when you watch not just a great movie, but a great original movie? Or is it just about how good it is, regardless of whether or not it's a sequel, regardless of the source material? Well, I'm going
5: to tell you something that I think will really shock you. Uh, and that is, you've seen The Maltese Falcon, I assume? Yes. Okay. Uh, a classic by any definitions, one of the greatest movies of all time. Do you know that that was the third version of that movie?
0: Oh, no, I did not.
5: And that an earlier one starred Betty Davis?
0: Well, now I have to go find that
5: version. <laughs> so. You know, I'm hesitant to say that, that remakes and sequels can't be good. Uh, there's always the like, examples, of the Maltese Falcon or the Godfather 2. Um, generally speaking, no. And the reason is risk assessment. Uh, if you're going to invest uh, $75 million in any project, you want to minimize your risk. And by having a, a known quantity uh, that the audience is already prepared, already interested, um that's that's something that uh, people like to invest in. So that's always going to be that's always going to be something and we're seeing now all these gender switched versions. That's the new trend. Uh so I'm happy to see that. I'm happy to see if they can do find something new. I'm happy to see um that uh Mary Astor is going to do a better job in the movie than even than Betty Davis, which I would never have anticipated. Uh but yeah, I certainly um see so much of the same thing over and over and over that I'm always always looking to be surprised and always very happy when I am surprised.
0: Alright, let's get to the three biggest Academy Awards, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Picture. And as we always do, let's go through who you think should win and who you think will win. Uh, with Best Actor, you've got Rami uh, Malek, who played Freddie Mercury. He's a first-time nominee, and he's up against Everyone else in the category who's either won an Academy Award before or has been nominated before—Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Viggo Mortensen, Willem Dafoe—it's his fourth nomination. How do you see this playing out?
5: You know, this is one of the toughest ones to call. I would definitely have said Christian Bale uh, in Vice. Uh, He's won the preliminary awards, but he's been so Looney tunes in his acceptances uh, that sometimes I wonder if the Academy just wants to make sure that it's a good show. I mean, I was at the Critics' Choice Awards when he gave his long, looping, crazy speech. So I think he's probably still going to win, but um, that's because I think the rest of the lineup just isn't uh, strong enough to beat him.
0: In Best Actress, it kind of looks like Glenn Close is the betting favorite. Who do you think should win and who do you think will win?
5: Well, Glenn Close fits into one of the Academy's favorite categories, which is, why hasn't she won an award before? She currently, I think, has the record for the most nominations without a win. Uh, the Wife uh, is a great performance and a good movie, uh, and it's not her best performance by any means. But again, I think that she is the strongest one in the category. At the Critics' Choice Awards, where I vote and where I was, uh, it was a tie. Uh, Glenn Close and Lady Gaga, they turned out to be longtime friends. And so they were you know, sort of holding each other and weeping, and it was very moving. So that would be my hope for this uh for this Oscar, that, uh, that we have another tie. Uh, but right now, I think it looks like Glenn Close.
0: There are eight films nominated for Best Picture, and this is another category where it seems like one is the overwhelming betting favorite, and that's Roma. Um, is it Roma's to Lose?
5: It's, it's Roma. I'm telling you, people up there with your Oscar pools, this is the closest thing to a sure bet other than Regina King as Best Supporting Actress that we have this year. Roma has won all the preliminary awards. I think it may just win the Big Four. I think it may win uh, Director and Cinematographer and Best Foreign as well. So, um, yeah, I, I am not a huge fan of Roma, so I'm not that enthusiastic about it, but I think it's the clear front-runner. Uh, if it were up to me, the best film of last year isn't even on this list, and it should have been, and that's uh, If Beale Street Could Talk by the same writer-director who did Moonlight. I thought that was one of the best films of the last five years, and if you haven't seen that, I,
0: I highly recommend it. And when it comes to the Academy Awards, any category... Please fill in the blank. Don't be surprised if...
5: <laughs> well, I think don't be surprised if Black Panther wins some of the lower-tier awards. I, they, they just could win production design costume, uh, and they certainly deserve it. And I think that uh, Black Panther should have been nominated for more awards, should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and I think it's going to pick up some awards uh, for the crew.
0: One of the best reasons to be on Twitter is so you can follow Nell Minow and get her thoughts on corporate governance, movies, and a lot more. Nell, thanks for being here, and here's to the next 10 years.
5: (laughs) Absolutely. I'll be here. Bye-bye.
0: Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Great email this week from Juan Carlos Para, who writes, Hey, guys! Just wanted to tell you that I've been listening to your show every day while I'm delivering at work. I'm 22 years old, and I just dipped my toe into the world of investing. I figured I could learn a lot by listening to your shows from the beginning, so I've started listening from the first episode of oh, Motley Fool. Wow. i oh, wow. got to say, it's funny hearing your predictions. It's like I'm from the future." <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's that's, a is, very good that's fantastic. Well and hey, congrats to Juan Carlos for starting his investing journey. It's a great well age to be, great. to be getting going. It really is. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar this week. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, You're up first. What are you looking at this week? All right, Danny, i got
2: American Tower, which is a real estate investment trust, or REIT, that is one of the largest owners of multi-tenant communication towers in the world. They uh, provide a critical part of the infrastructure powering the digital revolution that we talk about so much. Great unit economics, really strong competitive advantage. A combination of a nice yield and dividend growth. They've grown that dividend the past 23 consecutive quarters, and the dividend yield currently stands at 1.9%. And the ticker symbol A M T.
0: Dan, question about American Tower.
1: Well, astute listeners will know that Ron has yet to sway me (laughs) on any of these stocks on our radar segments. And is there a question here? You bring me communications towers. (laughs) (laughs) Not even the communications towers themselves, but the company that owns them. Is there a well? I guess that is a question. (laughs) It's a REIT, Dan. Did I mention
3: that? You did, you did. But (laughs) I'm still wondering why.
0: I think I know. How this is going to play out, Jason Moser? What are you looking at this week?
3: Well, I mean, I guess this is one that you probably want to steer clear of for now. Zillow ticker ZG uh, earnings coming out on Thursday, and I guess really my biggest question is just when are these going to? When are these guys going to start reporting some meaningful profitability? I know they want to focus a little bit more now on this new home segment of the business they have, but it's such a tiny fraction of the business at this point. Is losing money? It's just fluff. Don't even don't even worry about it because I don't even know it's going to be that much of a driver anyway. Zillow. is still really all about the premier agent business, and that growth is actually slowing a little bit. We know that we're not going to get any firm numbers on how many agents they have, so focus on the growth in the agents that are spending more than $5,000. CEO Spencer Raskoff mentioned that churn was a bit high in 2018. They hope that it abates in 2019, but still, You look back at the course of this company's public life, and the financials are just atrocious. I mean, they have yet to really report anything even close to profitable. Uh, And I can't help but think if we have a recession or a bad housing market, it's not going to play out well for these guys. So I really just want to see some kind of light at the end of the tunnel here on Thursday. Dan, question about Zillow. Well, this is great because uh, Jason, I'm a Zillow shareholder.
1: <laughs> oh, so. Finally, maybe I win one. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so maybe not, not much yet. of a question, as just a uh, a request for commiseration, please. <laughs> Andy Cross, what are you looking at,
4: Dan? When you're on your next trip to. Bermuda or the Cayman Islands? You got to put your money someplace. Go with Bank of NT Butterfield and Sons, a two billion dollar <laughs> bank. That's made up. Yes, it's not made up. Uh, one of the oldest banks in Bermuda. Uh, they report earnings next week, and the stock took a thumping after it reported a decline in deposits and some trouble with their De- Deutsche Bank uh, trust acquisition. So I'm looking for some sites and some insights on how the deposit growth is going and what's going on with the Deutsche Bank acquisition. Symbol NTB. Dan, Bank of N.T. Butterfield?
1: Yeah, so, a- Andy, what does the T stand for in N.T. <laughs> <laughs> Butterfield? Uh, that's
4: a good question, Dan. I know what the N stands for. It's Nathaniel and T. and the, the He is the the uh, founder's son uh, from uh, Bermuda when they founded the bank.
0: Three stocks, <laughs> Dan. You got one you want to add to your watch list?
1: <laughs> I do, Chris. I'm going to head down to Bermuda. Oh, Come on. Yes, hang out oh. in the sunny, now it's,
3: hey, now it's sunny the personal. beaches. Really Collect banded. that 4% yield. It really felt like Ron was just a shoot. I was in this way. close. Now it's personal. Next
0: time next time. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.